A lot of work goes into protecting our homes from the weather outside. You have got layers that make up every wall. You've got drywall, insulation, plywood, house wrap, and inciting. And all of those things, when they come together, well, they do a really good job. But then, what do we do? We cut giant holes into those very walls, sometimes even in the roof. Because at its most basic level, that's what a window is, a hole in your house. But there's obviously a lot more to it than that, because windows are some of the most complex parts of our homes, and they have to be because we ask them to do so much. We ask them to keep us comfortable and safe during all types of weather, and we want them to make our homes bright and more beautiful. From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. Today, we're looking at one of the most incredible machines in our homes, the window. We've been putting windows in our homes for centuries. Some of the earliest examples were simply openings in the roof or wall where we used everything from animal hide to wood to keep the weather and the critters out. Then we started making windows with glass. Don Powers is someone who knows a lot about what glass does and doesn't do in our windows. He's an architect who specs windows for large commercial and residential projects, but also for his own house in Rhode Island. And that was our recent Jamestown project on the show last season. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> hey, Don. So can I tell you a quick Jamestown story? Yeah. All right. So hang with me here. So there's this guy. His name is Thomas Cornwallis. And we're talking, this is sometime in the 1600s, all right? He's a pretty well-to-do guy, and he's built himself a house, which means, as you know, he's had to bring a lot of the nice stuff over from England. So he goes away for a little trip after his house has been built. And while he's gone, you know who shows up? Pirates. This is true? Or are you making this, this is up? True. This is true. What do you mean? I don't make stuff up. <laughs> Pirates row ashore, come on land, and they loot Thomas Cornwallis's house. And you know what they take? No. The window glass. Interesting. They steal his windows. Can you believe that? I can. Now, it makes sense because that would be a very valuable commodity in the colonies. That relative value of something in a house probably hasn't changed over time. The windows are still probably one of the highest expense components of a house that you're going to build to this day. They were probably at the top of the complexity graph in 1700, and they are now. I mean, if you've shopped for a window lately, you'd probably agree about how complex they are. That label on new windows with a bunch of numbers and abbreviations, well, that's produced by the National Fenestration Rating Council, or NFRC. There are five numbers on that label, and understanding them, well, that can really help you buy the best window for your home. As houses have gotten tighter and all of the systems that go into a house have gotten more complex, the windows have too. So they're engineered to within an inch of their lives at this point, and you really have to do your research to make sure you're putting the right window into the right assembly so that you're not wasting money on something that performs better than you need it to or less well than you need it to. At the top of the label, you'll find information about frame type along with details on any of the coatings on the glass. It'll also tell you about the different types of gas between the panes. 
you might have a low E, which means low emissivity, with an argon-filled window that's got a reflective coating on the fourth surface in. We don't need to explain what all of those things mean other than to say that they're carefully engineered. So a window that's perfect for Georgia is going to have a different assembly than a window that would be perfect for Maine. Because in the South, you're primarily solving for trying to avoid solar gain. And in Maine, you're trying to maximize solar gain because your, your primary energy expenditure is heating. You can come up with any recipe you want for how these windows are built. But it's primarily around, you've got the frame, which has to be efficient in and of itself. But the glass itself is a big component of that and how that, it can go anywhere from you know, simple double glazed with um, a vacuum between to triple glazed where you've got a different gas in the first layer than the second layer and you've got coatings on all the different surfaces of glass depending on what you need it to do. Then there's condensation resistance. Basically, it tells you how likely it is that condensation will form on the window. And you also have solar heat gain coefficient. That one's going to tell you how likely it is that the sun's heat will penetrate through the window. They've got to be able to keep heat in and and keep cooling in. They've got to keep solar gain from happening too much in one place, but make it optimal in another place. And so if you really are designing a house perfectly, every window would have a slightly different composition based on the amount of sunlight that you want to come in or keep out. So it's incredibly complicated. Then there's the U factor, or sometimes it's called the U value. U-value and R-value are basically the same thing. It's just a different way of expressing them. And that has to do with the ability to block heat transfer from one side to the other. But there are other components that you need to concern yourself with. Yeah, like the air leakage rating or how many cubic feet of air can move through a window in a minute divided by its entire area. A rating of 0.3 or lower meets Energy Star's standard for efficiency. How tight is that window in the wall? And that's generally, you know, if you're getting below 0.2 as an infiltration factor into or out of the window, you're in pretty good territory. And finally, there's visible transmittance, which has to do with just that. How much visible light can come through the window? Because some of the glass coatings that address other aspects of the window's performance can decrease that light. You're going to have to balance a bunch of factors to allow enough light in for it to feel like when it's a bright day, you're seeing the bright day. So as you need to resist that solar gain, the glass gets more and more opaque. And I don't mean that literally, but it's resisting sunlight coming through it. So do all of these numbers add up to windows that are as efficient as the walls they go into? If your priorities were only energy efficiency, well, you'd basically eliminate the windows altogether. Right. No matter how good they are, the window itself is the weak spot in the thermal envelope. The best window is getting an R value of six. And that's probably in a wall that's already got an R value of 35. So you can see what you're talking about. You've got a hole effectively where you've got one-fifth the efficiency in terms of keeping the heat out. Having a window already is a compromise with energy efficiency. Now you're just trying to mitigate the damage. So let's take a look at how glass used to be made to better understand where we are now. 
One of the things that made glass so difficult to get is that early on, you're melting glass to 3,600 degrees, and that's really hard to do. Elizabeth Milnerick is a practicing historical architect in Washington, D.C., and adjunct professor of architecture at the University of Virginia. Later on, we learned how to do some mixing. We added some stuff in that brought down the needed temperature to about half of that. But still, that's really high temperature to have to achieve to get glass going. Not only was it hard to do, but you could call it a revolutionary act. Officially, glass had to be imported from England since the king had banned all colony-based manufacturing that competed with English enterprises. Though that didn't keep the colonists from making it. And there were some small glass factories in the United States early on. 1608, there was one in Jamestown. 1638, there was one in Salem, Massachusetts. If you wanted glass in the 17th century, you either had to make it in secret or you had to bring your windows across the Atlantic. So the earliest windows here were, in fact, very precious. It was so labor-intensive and there was so little labor here in the United States that they closed quickly and were never sort of commercially successful glass productions. Everything had to come from England. One of the earliest examples of glass windows in America was in New England. The Parson Capon House, it was built in 1683 in Topsfield, Massachusetts. The Parson Capon House was impressive. It had 22 windows, each holding 30 small panes of glass, all of which were imported from England. The process of glass making at the Parson Capon House was called the crown glass process. And a glass blower would blow up like a pear shape, and then he would spin it and flatten it. One of the most distinctive parts of the crown glass process is that, so you're spinning it on a rod. And so in the middle, you end up with a bullseye. And that bullseye was understood as the cheapest part of the glass. We understand it, like, you'll see that all the time. Like, it makes me think of sort of 70s sort of bicentennial bars. You know, you'll see those those round pieces with the bullseye in the middle. Visually, for us, we look at that and we think of colonial architecture, and we may not exactly know why, but it's because that was the technology of glass blowing at the time. That technology didn't guarantee clarity. A lot of crown glass had a purple tint, and the small pane sizes were the result of the glass spinning process. Glass making in the colonies didn't really become a sustainable industry until the 18th century. But eventually, people wanted larger windows. The next big revolution is called cylinder glass. And the Nathaniel Russell House, which was completed in 1808 in Charleston, South Carolina, is a really good example of that type of glass. Nathaniel Russell was a wealthy Rhode Island merchant and wanted everyone to know it. His house cost $80,000 to build. Keep in mind that in 1808 Charleston, the average house cost only $262. His windows told the story of his wealth. They were enormous, taking up a large part of the main floor. The first floor windows were tall, and they went all the way down to the floor so that you could just open them and walk right outside. At the Nathaniel Russell House, we see the development of the sash window. And it's an advancement on the casement. And the casement window, it's 100% open, and you kind of don't have a lot of control. But with a sash window, it just means you've got two or three or more, as many as you want. But you've got these sort of individual sash that you can move up and down. So you can really control how much you're opening. To back up for a second, a sash is the part of the window that holds the glass and the framework around the glass to keep it in place. A window sash could be fixed or it could be movable. 
early on, the sash you would have just lifted. You kind of would have hefted up and then there were sort of attachments or props that you would nail to the frame to kind of keep them in place. Later on, and certainly at the Nathaniel Russell House, they're called hung. So when you hear the phrase double hung window, all those words mean something. So that means double means you've got two sash and hung means that they're attached to weights and the weights allow you to move those two sash more easily because they're pretty big and they weigh a lot now. So as windows were getting bigger and more complex, the glass used in them wasn't evolving as fast. Craftspeople are still blowing glass in this period, but in a slightly different way. Picture this. A glass blower would blow a molten sphere and would spin it around and make it bigger and then cut it down the middle and flatten it. So that was the more modern approach to glass blowing. And then, again, that was 1808. So large glass and therefore windows were possible. Now, fast forward to post-World War II America. The Levitt brothers created a housing assembly line of sorts. With hundreds of thousands of soldiers and sailors returning from the war, the demand for affordable housing was at an all-time high. At its peak, the Levitt factories were creating up to 36 houses a day. And all of those prefabricated houses needed windows. In the United States, we have all these factories that have been built up to supply the war industry, and then all of a sudden the war is over. And so these factories are looking for other things they can do, and manufacturing windows is one of them. So the production of windows becomes industrialized. But that doesn't mean that everything was perfect. The window materials were inefficient, and the glass itself wasn't that great. A lot of lessons were learned, though. And in the 1950s, a process called float glass came into its own. More on that in a minute. So what exactly is float glass? Well, over the last 70 years, we've streamlined the process, and it's relatively cheap to make compared to the older techniques we've been talking about. Now, glass is made in large factories, using furnaces that never shut off. Sand and other ingredients are melted and poured onto a molten bath of tin, which creates a sheet of glass that is uniform in thickness and in clarity. And although the glass has been made the same way for a while now, how we use the glass has changed a lot. I asked Don Powers to explain double-pane windows. The idea between the double-pane glass is that you have a space in between that's essentially a vacuum, probably not fully a vacuum, but the energy transfer, as you could imagine in a thermos bottle, the reason a thermos bottle keeps your coffee hot is because there's a space between the inside glass and the outside container. And it's the same principle with insulated glass on your house. You're not transferring heat directly across the glass because it can't get all the way across. There's a vacuum between. And the gas itself, we use a whole bunch of different, I mean, we use some different kinds of gas. It's not just air. The principle behind them is your the gas that's in there is chosen for its ability to resist transfer across it, its ability to not convect vertically or horizontally as much as air might do it. So it's it's just a way of increasing the efficiency of that space between the glass. It's not a big space. I mean, we only have a quarter of an inch, half an inch of space. So you have to kind of pick your gas accordingly. Right. And 
as you get into the more efficient glasses, that space can increase. And the bigger that space, the more ability to, it has to resist transfer. So you sometimes get one inch thick insulated glass, but the standard at your home center would be five eighths or a half inch between the glass. So the old technology or the 70-year-old technology of making glass has been changed. We now stick gas between two panes. We stick films and coatings on the glass. And we also ask, in some cases, the glass not to break. Hurricane zone, V-zone. You think about Florida that gets hit regularly by hurricanes. And there's a special code down there called the Dade County uh, Code, which recognizes that airborne debris is a big source of the damage that happens down there. So they've developed these windows and these glazing systems that can resist, let's say, a, a two-by-four fired out of a cannon. That's how they test it. It's amazing to see. And the glass will break, but it won't completely separate into pieces. It's got a film that holds it all together. But that's primarily for safety and to prevent loss of property in those events. And it's absolutely a game changer, so much so that it's part of the code now in areas with frequent hurricanes. So the windows now are designed so that they can resist breakage. The test, as you say, is yeah. like, you know shooting a two by four via cannon. So maybe pirates not stealing our windows, but still <laughs> subject to cannon fire. Yeah, right. <laughs> so if you have newer windows, you get the benefit of all of this technology, but the double hung window, you know, that design was essentially perfected. 300 years ago. And everything we've done since is add glazing technology and air sealing to the basic model of a double-hung window, which would have been in Mr. Cornwallis's house. So what if you have to live with the old windows in your house? Uh, you know, I grew up in a house that was built in the 1700s. Is this going to be a long story? It's going to be a long story. <laughs> <laughs> Long time this old house contractor, Tom Silva, knows a few things about old windows. I caught up with him on a job site in Paradise, California, where we were shooting four special Rebuilding Paradise episodes for the TV show. So those single pane windows uh, made out of wood, built the old fashioned way. Are you amazed that you find them on old houses still operational, still working? No, not at all. I mean, they're beautiful windows. And when they work and they're done right and they have a storm window in front of them, they have some energy value to them. Um, but it is a maintenance issue that you have to deal with. And putty is the problem. Uh, you have to make sure that everything saves tight. Yeah. A lot of the old windows, you know, they don't have the weather stripping that these new windows have. An old window works on a balancing system, that pulley, that weight, that pulley that, that balances the window so it stops where you want it to stop. And over time, as you open and close a window, you wear the wood out on the stops that hold the sash. So if you've got a window that rattles, you can adjust that by moving your stops in tighter to the sash, which gives a little more effort to open and close the windows, but technically that's what you want. You don't want to be able to go in with one finger and slide the window up, drop the window down. If you took care of your 100-year-old windows mm -hmm. and continued to paint them and protect them from the elements... And oil them where needed to be oil and change the putty as needed to be and check the hardware to make sure that's tight, to make sure it latches correctly. And if the window starts to sag from the house moving, making sure that the fit at the top and the bottom and the meeting rail is always tight, you'll get another 100 years out of them. 
Jumping forward to the windows that we buy today, the windows that you put into a house today, they look good. Um, as we mentioned, they do a ton of stuff for us in terms of insulation, air tightness, low E, and all of those things. They also hold up pretty well. They're made out of different materials and long lasting. Exactly. I mean, the materials today are a lot of them are man made materials, a lot of them are wood, but then that wood is covered with a clad system. The wood today is not like the wood of yesterday. The wood today is basically cut from farm trees, not old growth, big trees with tight grain that will last many, many years. If you don't protect that wood, if you don't paint that wood, if you don't seal that wood, it's going to fail over time. And it's not going to take long for it to start to rot. So even if you don't have the most advanced glass in the windows in your old home, knowing how to use them properly will make them more efficient. What do you think of the old glass when you see it? When you go into the old house and you see that glass that you spot right away and say, oh, that's the old stuff. What are you thinking? Uh, I should save that because it's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you this. Over the years, I've taken old panes of glass out and saved them because when I built my kitchen back in the 80s, I actually made multi-pane windows and I took all the old pieces that I had saved and put it in my kitchen. You made the window yourself? Yeah. What was that process like? It was a bit of a pain. <laughs> To get it? Get I get it, sign? yes. Yeah. I get it. It's not the first time I've heard it from you. <laughs> Look, windows are definitely a hole in your house. But they're also some of the most advanced machines in your home. And if you learn how to choose the right one and then how to use it properly, you can get the full benefit of the history of innovation and all of the technology that went into making them. Before we go, architectural historian Elizabeth Milnerick has one last tip, and it has to do with double-hung windows. You can operate both the top sash and the bottom sash. And so, you know, in the era before air conditioning, we would have been keenly aware of, you know, if you pull down the top sash, the hot air will go out. And if you open the bottom sash, the cool air will come in and you get a nice sort of convection, sort of air moving sort of process that you couldn't get from a casement. And so they were great tools for sort of controlling temperature. Drop us an email at clearstory at thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced by Rococo Punch for This Old House. Additional production support from Catherine Fenelosa, Chris Sermides, and Sarah Chase. Thanks to our guests, Don Powers, Elizabeth Milnerick, and of course, Tom Silva. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. <laughs>